Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day race fans, welcome to the Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host Will Dale and here's what's making headlines this week. Triple Eight dominated the opening round of the Repco Supercars Championship at Bathurst. Rockfini and new teammate Will Brown splitting the wins and the poles at Mount Panorama and we'll unpack all of the action from the mountain later in the show. Supercars technical department sealed a few of the engines used in cars after Sunday's race so they can evaluate them as part of the latest moves to achieve parity between the Mustang and the Camaro. It's understood that two of the engines are the ones used by the cars that finished first and second on Sunday, the Chevy of Will Brown and the Ford of Chaz Mostert. Craig Lowndes is tackling the Fink Desert Race this year. Chevrolet Racing has announced that the seven-time Bathurst 1000 winner will be aboard a Silverado ZR2 in the production four-wheel drive division this King's Birthday long weekend. And yes, that is the same division that Ford won last year with a Ranger Raptor. Shane Van Gisbergen has taken the first top three finish of his oval racing career. The multiple supercars champion took third place in the Xfinity Series race at Atlanta Motor Speedway, and we'll talk more about that later in the show. And for the second week in a row, we have a new lap record holder at Mount Panorama. Mercedes-AMG did it last week, but it's now owned by Ford and their bonkers all-electric e-transit Supervan 4.2. Its 1 minute 56.3247 second lap is the fastest ever time set around the circuit by a closed cockpit vehicle. Joining me as always is V8 Sleuth's Head of Publications award-winning journalist Stefan Bartholomeus. And Stefan, you were in Bathurst all weekend, so the big question is, did you catch the Wiggles concert on Thursday in the heart of the city? Hello, Will. You'll be surprised to know that I did miss that Wiggles concert. It's it's probably a shame they didn't bring those guys out to the track because, uh, yeah, supercars could have uh, used a few more brightly coloured spectators to distract from the amount of empty space going on on the mounds. Yes, and they seemed half-handy at a pit stop as well, so that probably wouldn't have hurt at least one or two teams. Right, on with the show. Let's start with our Stars of the Week. Steph, who's getting yours? Well, my star of the week is going to Paul Martin, who is stepping down from his role of Supercars Operations Manager to take a bit of a break from the sport. He's been at Supercars for over a decade and has done a lot of good for the sport, including keeping Super 2 alive when it was struggling and rebuilding the Bathurst 12-hour in the last couple of years. He doesn't have a big public profile, but he's just one of those passionate motor racing people that the business really needs, and he's going to leave a big void there, I think. So hopefully we do see him back in some capacity sooner rather than later. Oh, absolutely. And we, of course, wish him all the best in what he's moving on to. Uh, My star is headed to Tickford Racing this week. 
It wasn't the greatest weekend at the track for them, but once again, they've absolutely knocked it out of the park on social media. Now, we all saw Cam Waters lose a wheel during the Saturday race. Well, by Sunday morning, they'd recorded a video of the wheel rolling through the paddock, rolling through the Tickford garage, past Thomas Randall while he was eating a banana, all set to Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary. Now, it's it's always impressive how they managed to turn some ripping content out of what was a pretty bad moment, re- really. Um, but we can all hope that skill won't be leaned on too much during the rest of the year. Right, the Bathurst Superfest is done and dusted after last weekend's thrifty Bathurst 500, the opening round of the Repco Supercars Championship. Steph, this time around, I was the one who was on the couch at home and you were the one who was on the ground at Mount Panorama. What was the vibe at the circuit? I mean, did it feel like a spectacular way to start the season? Well, I mean, it was a pleasant enough event and I think some of those extra festival elements they tried to add, like that Wiggles concert you mentioned, that seemed to be pretty well received. But certainly as a race meeting, it was a low-key way to start the championship. The crowd was really thin and the atmosphere at Bathurst without a crowd is pretty flat. And I think the widely held view is that supercars should only go to Bathurst once a year. And by all accounts, last weekend was a much smaller event than even the 12-hour the week before, which um, was a pretty clear comparison point. But look, we all know it was a stopgap measure for this year after the Newcastle race fell over and they've got to now find a new solution for the opening round in 2025. Yeah, I do agree. Watching from home, it all did feel a bit flat, but it also kind of illustrates how spoilt we've been all these years with having the Adelaide 500 in that opening race slot every year, a big big festival without being a festival, a four-day carnival of all sorts of on-track action right in the heart of the city. That's transitioned extremely well to an end-of-season race, and I don't see it moving back to the front of the calendar anytime soon. So this is an issue that Supercars does need to fix as to where do they start their championship? I mean, Steph, where do you think, what place do you think fits the bill? Well, you're exactly right. Adelaide set an incredible benchmark and Newcastle slotted really nicely into that position and it a new street event would be ideal supercars aren't ruling anything out at this stage for next year but it's hard to see it ending up anywhere other than sydney motorsport park like outside of getting a new street event up i don't think that would be an entirely bad option supercars were forced into starting the season at smp in 2022 due to COVID, and that was a bit flat because everyone had a bit of smp fatigue after the four in a row there the year before. But when you look at what they can do out there with night racing, prime time, having it close to Sydney and outside of the NRL and AFL seasons, I think there's potential to make that something quite special as a season opener. Absolutely. I think that would be quite a sensible way to go. Although I did hear on another podcast that you also floated the potential idea of maybe New Zealand being a good option to start a season. Well, supercars aren't ruling anything out at this point, as I said. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Indeed. And as I said at the top of the show, Triple Eight dominated the weekend that we had for a season opener at Bathurst with both pole positions and both race wins and the lead in both the drivers and the Dunlop team's championship standings. All the more impressive given it was Will Brown's first weekend in his new day job as the driver of the number 87 Red Bull Ampol Racing Camaro. And he leaves the track with the championship lead. Steph, they were the team with the least changes over last year and with the best form in winning the opening race of the season. I mean, I think it's I think it's 16 out of the last 19 years now. So I guess it's really no surprise that they were the strongest out of the gate. 
that is an incredible record. And yeah, it wasn't a surprise that Triple Eight came out on top, but the fact that Will was right there with Brock all weekend, I think that was really impressive for him to come out of the gate like that. When when you look at it, like Will copped a bit of flack mid last year for deciding to leave Erebus. And then Triple Eight copped it too after Bathurst for the fact they didn't go with Richie Stanaway for that seat. So this really was a strong statement straight up to show that there's two genuine championship contenders at Triple Eight this year. And it's just such a fascinating dynamic too between those guys. Like Triple Eight has never had two guys at the same stage of their career battle it out like this. So it's yeah, it's going to be a really fun battle to watch. Now, Steph talked to Will Brown's race engineer, Andrew Edwards, about how his driver knocked off Mr. Sunday, his take on his old driver, Shan Van Gisbergen's impressive Xfinity Series run in Atlanta, and the Supercars weekend as a whole after the race on Sunday. Andrew Edwards, very impressive whenever a team can bring in a driver and win with them straight away. How did you do it? <laughs> well, I mean, we have an excellent team at Triple Eight, and it's, you know, it goes from the top level the bottom everyone puts in and and I think you saw even when when I came here when a driver comes there's not a big blip in the system because it's processes you know there's procedures and there's just a methodology and a a kind of an attitude on how to attack things and I think Will fits in well with us you know what I mean and um and has adjusted to the environment quickly and you know what I mean and off, off we go in a way. He's a very different personality mm. to Shane Van Giesbergen, yep. but how different is he actually to work with behind the scenes? Uh, I mean, I, I love working with Shane, and, and, I'm, and I'm really loving working with, with, um, with Will too, you know what I mean? So, yeah, they're very different personalities, no doubt, but they're both, you know, they're both focused. They're both, they both want to win. They're both hungry. Um, they're happy to talk about every aspect of the car. So, you know, I still think that they're similar in a lot of ways. They just go about it maybe differently. You know, they're just different personalities. Um, one's not right or wrong, and and I really enjoy working a lot with both of them. Will obviously came from the team that beat you guys to mm. both championships last year. So was he able to bring a bit to you guys as well? Um, look, he's obviously he's driven a car. You know, he's driven that car. He knows its strengths and weaknesses, and and maybe can say it does X Y Z better, but. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't have a setup sheet and go, "Hey, here it is," and things like that. And even if he did, I don't know that it would would work. You know what I mean? We have a particular philosophy, and and we we kind of carrying on with that. And um, and he's trying to adapt to that at the moment. But he does probably need some different things to um, to how we've been running the car. And so I guess this weekend we've been trying to dial that in a bit. Um, and so there's a learning curve. There's a learning curve for us there. Both him driving our car and us learning what he he needs on the result sheet it was a pretty much perfect weekend for the team but there was a little bit of stress in mm. the saturday race with the position switching in the pit stop how yeah. did the debrief of all that go down because as an yeah. engineer at the time i gather you thought that was your fault because you got the call to, to pit first yeah so yeah i mean it was certainly it was my call you know what i mean as the lead car i got to call whether i went first or second and i chose first Probably wrongly so, I think, you know what I mean? Like, when I was watching it, there wasn't enough data to see if it was an undercut or overcut because everyone that had pitted before us had dropped out from traffic, so they went a little faster here and there, and 
and we just kind of looking at the graph, we'd kind of just rolled over a little bit on the lap time and I thought we were on a trajectory of degradation. Um, didn't work out like that and, and really the right thing I think to do was to run a bit longer, um, run that extra lap. So maybe we could have done some things in and out of the pits a little, little better too. But all in all, yeah, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's disappointing, you know what I mean? To, you, know, you know, you feel responsible to kind of give up that position. But um, yeah, I think in the end, it's fine. It's to our teammate. It's not the end of the world, but um, yeah, I felt it hurt me at the time. <laughs> I won't lie to you, but but um, yeah, live and learn, and, and we'll move on. The racing today, in particular, the polar opposite to say the Bathurst One Thousand last year, where everyone was so conservative on the soft tyre. Mm. Do you feel that the hard tyre is where supercars should go for October? That, that's that is it is difficult. I think there's a couple of views there. Um, now maybe there's not as much marbles, but Will, Will did say that it was very sensitive to picking up dirt. So any dirt or anything like that, you had a big wobble, whereas the soft didn't do it as much. Um, certainly they were pushing harder and not conserving as much, but you still can't rag the, the hard and, and get away with it. There's still some conservation. It's just maybe you're at 80, 80%, not 60%. So what's the right call? I don't know. I, I think but both tyres are going to have pros and cons, you know what I mean? Um, but I think you can get away with this this hard. Now, while you were busy here at the track today, your old mate mm. Shane scored a pretty impressive <laughs> third place finish at Atlanta. Does his performance over there surprise you at all, knowing yeah. what you do about him? This is a, I'm, you know, this is a hard one because um, I'm not shocked, but I should be, you know what I mean? Like, I'm shocked because, you know, like the Chicago thing, it shouldn't happen. You, you shouldn't be able to run that quick with those guys not knowing the track and so new to the car, but we know him, you know what I mean? We've seen what he can do. Uh, we know what he's capable of, so in that way it, it's not a surprise, but um, it, it, it's amazing. There's no other way to say it. And, you know, we're still well behind him and, and it's an exciting journey to watch. You're pretty entrenched now as an important part of this race team, but any desire from yourself to go over and do more of that? Because obviously you're in Chicago when he won that race, working on that program. I don't know. I mean, I would, I would, don't get me wrong, I would like to. It's interesting, um, and it would be a new challenge. I think their schedule makes it very difficult for our family. Um, but at the moment, I, I love working with this team, and I, and I really want to you know, go on a journey with Will, you know what I mean? I think think we can we can try and build something together and and i hope we can we can take it to a successful place and um yeah i love building that i love building that relationship with a driver and and going on that on that journey now for as good as triple eight were there were a heap of other teams that won't be having happy debriefs back at the hq later this week and the live pit lane order that Supercars has brought in for 2024 means there's really nowhere to hide either because a bad weekend will have a big impact on which garage you'll be in for the next round. And you can check out what the provisional order will be for the Albert Park sprints on the V8 Sleuth website. Uh, Dick Johnson Racing, probably the obvious starting point. I mean, they had a really challenging first year with the Gen 3 platform, but still managed to end up fifth in the team standings. But they're down in 10th after Bathurst this year, which means they're going to be in the next-to-last set of garages. I mean, 
Will Davison took a solitary top 10 finish on the Sunday. Um, that was their only top 10 of the weekend. Anton Di Pasquale made both shootouts but slid backwards in the races. I feel like the riding was on the wall in Friday afternoon's practice sessions when the two DJR cars had arguably the best of the track conditions with being last on the road as the track dried out from a mid-session shower, yet they didn't actually go anywhere on the timesheets. Well, as you said, they did have some one-lap speed, though, like both cars in the shootout on Sunday. That was a lot more than they were able to achieve at round one last year, if you remember back to Newcastle. But, yeah, the, the race pace was was terrible. Like There was nowhere to hide from that. It was embarrassing the way Anton went back through the field in particular. And it does sound like a bit of a broken record from last year, but there's just no doubt the homologation team duties they've had over the off-season, both on the aero and the engine side, it's hurt those guys. I mean, a lot of their engineering resources have gone into the engine program in particular since they took that over and it's clearly contributed to a poor start. And of course, with the rearrangements in their structure internally as well, Anton's got Perry Capra as his engineer this week or this year. And some of that will also take time to settle in as well. Tickford also are surely disappointed with how they've started the year as well. Both cars in the bottom half of the field in race one, which was further compounded by Waters' lost wheel, which uh, that was caused by a broken spindle, which was an identical failure to the one that Erebus had. If you think back to last year, they had one break during a ride day at Sandown after the 500. Uh, Thomas Randall bounced back on the Sunday with a fine fourth place, but Cam was was my tip for the title this year, and he's already 192 points off the pace. Cam had an absolute shocker. It's it's hard to remember such a bad start to a season for someone that came in with such a high level of expectation on them. And Garth Tander called Cam out on the TV coverage on Sunday saying that he needs an attitude adjustment and he's letting peripheral factors cloud his focus. It's obviously hard to know everything that's contributed to a result like they had, but either way, it's going to be really interesting to see how he bounces back from it like cam's just at such an interesting point in his supercars career as well like he could have had that seat at triple eight for this year but he wanted to stay at tickford and continue those relationships with ford and monster that could help him get to nascar one day and again fascinating to see how this year pans out for him both on and off the track now another ford team that's down the wrong end of the pit lane with both djr and tickford for albert park is walkinshaw andretti united but i don't think that's really reflective of what was probably their strongest race weekend of the Gen 3 era. I mean, Chaz Mostert looked a genuine shot at the race win on Sunday for the first time in a long while. And sure, Ryan Wood ended the weekend with zero points after early dramas in both races, but he was plenty quick in qualifying. He was, and I think, yeah, across the two cars, speed-wise, it was a very encouraging start for Walkinshaws, particularly Chaz with his new engineer, Sam Scafidi, who he did have a bit of a relationship with from previous times at Tickford, but... Chaz had some really interesting things to say after Saturday's race about how Sam has challenged him to be better and how the change of engineer has actually helped him when when some people were saying that that it would hurt. But you look you look at it and their Sunday, Chaz probably should have won that race. I mean, I was surprised they left it so long to take that second pit stop. They had that bit of a fuel deficit to Will Brown and they let the lead shrink too far before pulling the trigger on the stop. Like by the time they did, he was always going to come out behind Brown. So overall, great start though for WAU. And now the challenge is whether they can do it consistently because we have seen that team fly out of the blocks plenty of times before and then fall flat on their faces at other tracks. This is true. Uh, 
Brad Jones Racing had it. They had their bugbear from last year of struggling to switch on the tire in qualifying, come back to bite them with the combination of the hard tire and the cool conditions during Sunday session. And therefore, cars, the best of them were 19th on the grid, um, which on a 24-car grid, when you've got four cars, you do the math, it's not not particularly not particularly great, unfortunately. But they were punchy in the races. I mean, Bryce Fullwood made five spots on Saturday and eight on Sunday, and he led the team on, um, on both days. Uh, but let's look at the success stories of the weekend now. How about Grove Racing? I mean, I think Richie Stanaway's performance on Saturday answered quite a few questions about how he'd go in the crowd with his own car. Uh, Matt Stone Racing also had a fantastic weekend, the only real blip being Cameron Hill's dramas off the start in race two, but he had a great day on Saturday, and it also looks like Nick Perkat's selling in pretty nicely too, with sixth and ninth place in his first weekend at MSR. And then there's David Reynolds and Team 18. I mean, he's clearly gelled really quickly with Richard Holway and that car because I don't know whether anyone would have expected him to be tied for fourth in the standings after round one. I still can't believe Dave's luck getting that puncture between the pit box and pit exit before yeah. he shoot out though. Like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. But, yeah, you call out some good ones there. Overall, there are a lot of drivers and teams that came out of the weekend with something encouraging to hang their hat on, even though everyone was a long way away from those top three cars at the end of Sunday's race. But um, I'd throw James Golding into the mix of, of people that had a bit of positivity at the end of the weekend. I mean, he qualified on the first couple of rows both days and was fifth in the Sunday race despite being barged out of the way early by Brock Feeney down there at the chase. So, yeah, plenty of promise up and down the field. But, again, we'll see how it translates elsewhere through the season. I mean, Bathurst on a hard tyre is is hardly typical of what the rest of the calendar looks like. Well, as you might have gathered from the headlines at the start of the show, we didn't have a supercars race weekend that was completely free of parody chatter. All last year, the headline was aero. Well, this time around, all the talk was about the relative performance of the engines. Dick Johnson Racing took over from Herod Performance in the role of being Ford's engine provider for this year under the name Motorsport Powertrains, and they've done a lot of work in the off-season, as you alluded to before, Steph. I mean, there were some wild rumours that Ford had been told to turn a few things down after the pre-season testing at Winton, but come round one, and Chaz Mostert in particular was very vocal about the fact that his Mustang was slower through the Conrad Strait speed trap than the Camaro's. Uh, the global head of Ford Performance, Mark Rushbrook, he jetted in for the weekend and parody, of course, was a big part of the chat that he had with media at the track. Uh, here's what he had to say about it from the Blue Oval's perspective. We know that the processes that are here today um, or that were in supercars historically leading up to this, we knew that aero wasn't sufficient and it's great that supercars has embraced that now and gone to, to wind shear to a controlled test with a process that's aligned with both manufacturers, with both homologation teams, and we believe we've got a good outcome there. We've said from day one, from three years ago, that um, AEP, using the dyno that's available here, is not sufficient, especially when you get to two different engines, different displacement, different architecture, the transit response is going to be different. So it may look the same, AEP may say it's the same, that doesn't mean it is the same. We've certainly seen that um, in terms of the engine that we had last year, even the engine with improvements that have been made to the engine still measures the same AEP, but it still races differently. And the ultimate goal is a proper transient dyno, which now there is a 
can, well, there is a commitment that that testing will happen, so we can characterize the two different engines on there. I expect that we will see differences there that we did not see on the dyno here, but then we've got to be prepared to make those changes there and bring them back onto the racetrack. Steph, engine parity was one of the big talking points in Friday's team principles presser as well, so it's clearly a it's clearly still a contentious point on not just the Ford side, but both sides of the manufacturer divide. Oh, there's no doubt that engines were the biggest talking point of the weekend right from that uh, Thursday press conference onwards and, yeah, through the week. People were driving themselves mad comparing sector times and trap speeds between different cars, but there's just so many variables in, in that with car setup and everything else. So, really, supercars is only going to get this under control by getting the transient dyno testing done and that still might be a couple of months away. But overall, like there is a feeling it's moving in the right direction and DJR should be commended for the investment they've put into that engine and the progress that they've made with it. Mm. Because what's really become apparent is that the Ford engine program last year was under-resourced and really underbaked before DJR took it over. There was some basic things wrong that just weren't picked up or addressed, including a pretty fundamental issue where the fuel injectors were orientated incorrectly and not spraying the fuel directly into the combustion chamber, which caused all sorts of problems. So just correcting that apparently gave them a good gain. But they've yeah put a pile of work in around overhauling the control strategies on the engine as well as some moment of inertia items as well. I mean, last year they were throwing belts because the alternator was spinning at 20,000 RPM or something ridiculous, but the money just wasn't being invested into, into fixing things like that. It is also interesting to note that the operations manual for 2024, so the sports rule book, that was updated over the off-season to emphasise that supercars isn't responsible for homologation teams presenting cars or engines that are uncompetitive and that it's only there to guide the competitors with homologation, which is um, felt a bit pointed. Yeah, that's right at the heart of what we're talking about here. I mean, last year, Mark Rushbrook publicly just threw it all on supercars to fix, but that's never really been the ethos of the championship. So this is more like new wording in the ops manual than a new rule. Like this is basically saying to Ford that it's not up to supercars to fix your engine. But I think there's always two sides of it. And it's a tough line that supercars walks here because when you've got a 5.4 litre double overhead cam engine and a 5.7 litre push rod, like they're technically very different. So you've got to work collaboratively to try and get them to perform the same way, which includes going above the AEP model and getting this transient dyno testing done. And I think you can always learn from history, and we can't forget that the quad cam Nissan and Mercedes both disappeared from the category basically because they struggled to be competitive within the box they were put in by the rules. It's certainly Gen 3 would have been a lot simpler under the original plan of having the Ford engine in all cars, or I guess if KRE hadn't done such a good job with the Chev engine. But in many ways, all of Ford's pain with Gen 3 can be traced back to their decision to ditch Triple Eight way back when. This is very true. Uh, the last thing we'll touch on from a supercar standpoint at Bathurst is the racing itself. I mean, the category switched to the hard tyre for this for the weekend just gone after running the soft Dunlop at last year's Bathurst 1000. We got Andrew Edwards' take on the hard tyre earlier in the show. Steph, unless we all pray for a wet Bathurst 1000, I, I personally reckon the hard tyre does seem to be the lesser of the two evils here. Yeah, Tim Edwards told me on Sunday night that they've canvassed teams and drivers and got quite a mixed reaction to this topic of what they should do for the 1,000, but it's certainly 
to me, looks like a pretty straightforward swap to to go to the hard for October. Like the races on the weekend, they weren't crackers, but at least we saw the drivers pushing a lot harder than they were able to last year in the 1000. Like the battle at the front was was quite intense. So for me, I think the ideal scenario is still to have a set of super softs for the shootout to make sure that there's still that sort of chase for a Hollywood lap time on, on Saturday afternoon. I, I think if everyone who makes the shootout could get maybe two sets of super softs, one to use in final practice for a sim run, and then one for the shootout itself. That would be uh, that would be the ideal scenario. The best of both worlds, as it were. Uh, now we can't end chatting about the thrifty Bathurst five hundred without talking about Ford's e Transit Supervan four point two to use its full name and give it the respect it deserves. After all, it is now the new Mount Panorama lap record holder with French sports car gun Romain Dumas clocking a 1 minute 56.3247 second lap on Sunday afternoon, faster than the Mercedes-AMG Super GT3 car did last weekend. Now, if you're not across it, the Supervan is this all-electric beast that has 2,000 horsepower on tap from its four electric motors and generates some two tonnes of downforce from its bodywork. Ford ran it during the 12-hour weekend but didn't set a full time while they had a few upgraded parts that were fabricated for it during the week by DJR. While a local Bathurst business, U-Butte Fabrications, uh, they did a bit of welding on some steering parts during the week as well. There may or may not have been a cheeky carton of beer handed over from Ford given it all had to be done outside of normal work hours. Uh, Anyway, it all got the job done, and according to Romain Dumas, they ended up going faster than they thought it would go in the sim. I mean, what we achieved here, if you ask already last week, you saw we had some issue with the power steering. (laughs) Luckily, a lot of people were involved to to find a solution, and still on my first lap, the steering was sometimes a little bit hard, you know, so because it was never done to go at this speed on a straight... You know, to go at this, like we are doing today. I mean, a lot of small things, you know, like the windscreen was bending and things like that because it was never designed for that. So if you are thinking Nürburgring, you know, it's a long straight. So <laughs> we have to think about and work on it for sure. But How much was left in Really? Yeah, so it's funny, you would possibly not believe it, but this morning we went a lot faster than what we expect. I always said we should go around 59. That was true. On a sim, we were driving 58, 57i, and uh, this morning we had a lot faster. Unfortunately, we didn't have any more new tires for this afternoon or for now, so we just tried. But I was sliding a lot, so I think with four new tires could be a little bit faster. But you know, the trick here or the difficulty here is for sure that the driver, on top of that, you know, it's not a small car. You know, it's, so you need laps to get the confidence, and it starts to be, for me, also quicker and quicker. We walk a lot. I mean, you see, this thing is so impressive. Also, I can tell you to go over the crest in sector one and stay flat. Uh, you need some laps. <laughs> so, it was, uh, yeah, but it was good. I love the fact that he said they didn't run new tyres on the lap where they set the record, that they didn't have any any greens left. It, it just felt like something straight out of the old supercars driver playbook where you make your lap time in practice sound more impressive by saying you were running some pre-marks that had done 300 kilometres at Winton already. <laughs> I reckon he fits right <laughs> in in that supercars paddock. Overseas now and the Formula One World Championship gets underway for 2024. Underlights in Bahrain this weekend. 
It's a Saturday night race, which will look spectacular in the photos, but unfortunately means the lights go out at the not exactly fan-friendly time of 2am Australian Eastern Daylight Time Sunday morning, live on Fox Sports and KO, of course. Reigning world champion Max Verstappen goes in as an almost unbackable favourite after the Red Bulls blitzed all comers in testing last week, while the renamed Visa Cash App RB squad also looked very speedy, which is great news for fans of Daniel Ricciardo. The World Superbike Championship got underway at Phillip Island last weekend and it warmed my heart to see young Nicolo Bulliger get a first up win in superbikes along with pole position. The Italian was a long-time VR46 prodigy but made the switch from GPs to production bikes a couple of years ago and he went on and won last year's Supersport title. Alex Lowe's won the other two races for Kawasaki. To NASCAR, and it was a thrilling three-wide finish to the Atlanta Cup Series race. They actually had to go to the photo finish camera to verify that Trackhouse Racing's Daniel Suarez got the nod by just millimetres from Ryan Blaney and Kyle Busch. Officially, Suarez was ahead by just three thousandths of a second, which is the third closest finish in series history. Meanwhile, Team Penske and Joey Logano are in hot water. NASCAR found that the two-time Cup Series champ had, believe it or not, illegally modified gloves allegedly with webbing placed in between the thumb and index finger. The theory being, and he was spotted doing this on the in-car camera, that he was placing it up against the holes in the window net to reduce drag during his qualifying run. Now, he qualified in second place, but was made to start from the rear of the grid and serve a pit lane drive through penalty when the race started, and he has also been fined 10 grand US. But, of course, the big news NASCAR-wise for us, as we said at the top of the show, Shane Van Gisbergen, well, we can't say he finished on the podium because NASCAR doesn't technically have podiums. They have Victory Lane and they have everyone else. Uh, But he has the first top three finish of his Xfinity Series career. He qualified 13th at Atlanta despite not getting a chance to do any practice sessions and then sat 8th as a two-lap overtime began. Uh, He'd been saving fuel and had also come into the pits for a splash, and he was able to rise to third by the chequered flag. Here's what he had to say afterwards. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, You know, we come into pit and I thought we'd saved a bit of fuel, but we still come anyway, and obviously it was the right call. Yeah, what an awesome feeling just running and then trying to block and follow those guys up front. Yeah, I was just smiling the whole time. It was really cool. That audio from TSJ 101 Sports. He also told media that he was up late the night before watching Triple Eight score a 1 2 at Bathurst on the Saturday race. And we saw the pics of Triple Eight all huddled around a phone in the garage on Sunday watching Gizzy's race play out. Motorsport News mailbag time. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there were quite a few questions about the missing man from last weekend, Brody Kostecki. Uh, Nikki Davis was right to the point in asking, what's happening with Brody? Excellent question. Uh, Mark Shields was wondering, how many times Jesse Yates' sit-down interview with Betty Clemenko and Barry Ryan was played out over the weekend? He counted at least four. I reckon I probably saw it that many times as well. Uh, Jackie Driscoll said, why Betty and Barry kept banging on about respect for Brody? Uh, she says, one would have thought that if Brody wants out, then why won't they release him? Because that would be respect. Joel Askew, I like this one. Why are motorsport journalists too scared to ask why won't Erebus release Brody? Uh, Joel, it has been asked. We just haven't been given an answer. Uh, Steph, we're now through round one. Brody didn't race. Erebus did. Neither party won, and the fans certainly didn't either. Are we any closer to a resolution that sees the two parties go their separate ways? Well, it's still the big question that that looms over the championship, and 
guess all I can really do for you is summarise the developments that we did see over the weekend. So in no particular order, we had Barry Ryan and Betty Clemenko do a sit-down TV interview to tell us they couldn't really tell us anything, and the TV played it about 400 times, I'm told. We had Peter Adderton and his henchmen hand out T-shirts with the phrase Free Brody on them, which gave some great Chappelle Corby style vibes. And while all that was happening, Brody was at Taylor Swift in Sydney with about <laughs> eighty thousand other people. Oh, uh, that is that's a that's that possibly my favorite part of that update. And I really loved the idea of Pete Addison handing out shirts. <laughs> that's fantastic. I I reckon we just need if anyone else was at that Taylor Swift concert that can tell us if Brody was actually singing along to "We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together." <laughs> that could be the closest thing we'd get to a, to a proper update on this. Uh, here's me wondering what outfit, what era's outfit he chose, but yeah, that is the big question. Um, one of the things of note in that TV interview that Fox aired multiple times over the weekend was that Betty said the situation um, is in is in Brody's hands. She did say that, and it was a shame that we didn't get to hear from Brody. I, I believe Supercars did approach him to be interviewed, but he couldn't really say anything while it's still a legal situation and his ability to actually tell the story going forward will no doubt be a sticking point in any settlement situation that does get negotiated like normally these contracts they do go away when they need to you know you look all the way back to Craig Lowndes going to forward like I think Fred Gibson only got Craig out of his TWR deal the day before first practice at Albert Park with like a big bag of cash and that could still happen here. Like there's still rumours flying that Premier want to put Brody in a car straight away. But if Brody wants the ability to tell his story, he might actually have to sit out the season, which would be a huge shame. It really would. And um, as always, let's hope that the situation is resolved before the next time we record an episode. And sooner or later, that statement will be true. Now, a reminder that the Motorsport News podcast isn't on its own here in this feed this year. We've got a couple of teammates. Uh, last week, we had the debut of Special Stage, where the boys from Rally Sport magazine, Peter and Luke Witten, wrap all things rallying both here and around the world. And then there's the Brad Jones Racing Rundown with the driver of the number 96 Pizza Hut Chevy Camaro, Macaulay Jones, and BJR's general manager, Chris Westwood. I'm looking forward to hearing how the Bathurst 500 played out from their perspective in their next episode. And of course, over on the V8 Sleuth podcast, We've had a new episode of Race Control where Craig Baird breaks down all the incidents and all his rulings and all the ways that Race Control viewed the things that happened at the Bathurst 500. So go check that out. And this week's V8 Sleuth podcast episode is part one of a two-part sit-down with Garth Tander. And yes, he's been on the show before. That was five years ago. He hadn't raced a Ford by that point, and he sure has now. And it was very entertaining and enlightening chat, and he had plenty to say about the co-driver rule, let's just say that. Uh, but for now, on behalf of Stefan Bartholomeus, I'm Will Dale, and we'll catch you next Tuesday on the Motorsport News Podcast. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, 
WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.